All right, behind enemy lines, again, one more night. And we are training as Christian soldiers to go into battle. Tonight, the topic is the morality of the market. Is there such a thing? Can there be such a thing? What does the economy say about us and about our culture? And what has our culture done to the economy? Well, we're going to start off with some words from Christ in Mark 8, in which he uses economic terms and incentives. And he says, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, you're going to have to give up a whole lot. For whoever would save his life and everything that consists of this life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Look at this question. It's rhetorical. It's not meant to be answered. It's meant to be considered. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Right in the call to discipleship, the call of Jesus for us to follow him, he puts it into economic terms. Economics is more than money. It is. But what is it and why does it matter? It, we can almost assume that money and God are two separate subjects, or even worse, money and God are opposing subjects, right? Because Jesus, again, said, no man can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. So money is just a necessary evil, isn't it? Is that where we leave it? Not quite. Do you know that Jesus spoke more about money than any other, uh, than many, not any other, but many other topics, such as even prayer and faith. He was constantly bringing it up. And one example could be Luke 16, where the entire chapter, everything that is spoken of in that chapter, and it's a big chapter, is all about economics and choices that are made as a result of economics. We're not going to go into that tonight, but it's there for you to look at at another time. But what is economics? This is where we're going to start tonight. What is it? Economics is not just the study of how we spend money. It's the study of choices and the forces that influence them. Dr. James Guartney, an economist, put it this way. He said, life is about choices. And economics is about how incentives affect those choices and shape our lives. Economics is about human decision-making. The, the analysis of the forces underlying choice and the implications of how societies work. You can't go through a day without making choices that involve values. And those our choices, so what we spend our money on, reflects our choices, and our choices reflect our values. And again, Jesus made it very clear in Matthew 6, don't lay up treasure for yourself on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart 
will be also. Our treasure reveals our heart, reveals what our heart loves most. So it's pretty important. And how a culture handles money, handles value, handles economics, says a lot about what that culture believes about God. And that's exactly what we're going into, because there is a movement today, even within the Christian church in Western society, to think that maybe Marx, Karl Marx and Engels had something going about, you know, money in the Bible. Maybe their model is more Christian than capitalism or what we're going to call tonight the free market. We're not going to call it capitalism. Think of the little man with the top hat and the Monopoly game, right? We're not concerned about that. We're not talking about the industrial capitalists that Karl Marx was talking about, those evil industrial capitalists and how they were trying to rule the world and so on. We're just going to talk about a free market tonight. But is Marxism a biblical model for the economy? This model is being made great again these days. Um, in many ways, Acts 4, we're going to get into it a little bit later, but it looked like the early church actually modeled itself after this idea of everyone was just sharing everything and had everything in common. We're going to look at that a little bit later. But such Christian leaders as Jim Wallace and Ron Sider, and then you have on the Roman Catholic side, you have Pope Francis who attacked what he called unfettered capitalism as a new tyranny and has openly promoted the redistribution of wealth. And then not just in the church, but of course, most of us today here probably know the name Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum and his push for the Great Reset. He's a German economist and engineer who has famously said his dream for all of you is that you will own nothing and be happy. And combining COVID-19, climate change, and the economy, uh, he wants to see the world's economy reset on a global scale. And that's where the, the Biden administration's slogan, Build Back Better, comes from that is going around today that we need to tear down Western society to the ground and build back better. He's calling for more surveillance, not just of biology, but of society. He's calling for more government. Of course, you're going to need more government. You're going to see why tonight. It's going to become very obvious why that would be. And he's calling for sacrifices of the people for the greater good. After all, he believes that lockdowns globally save the economy from collapse. No mention of mental health or physical abuse or suicides or drug abuse or basic human rights. No, it's all justified in his mind because the economy comes first and uh, the economy needs to be reprogrammed. And of course, again, to beat the same drum, a high school near you, public high school near you, probably even the Catholic high school near you, is training little Marxists as well, teaching them all kinds of critical theory uh, that the neo-Marxists are all about. And they're not even hiding it anymore. However, is it biblical? Well, two things we need to consider first of all. And the first one is that we cannot evaluate capitalism or Marxism based on a clear biblical blueprint. Probably why there's so much discussion even within Christian circles about this. 
There's no set biblical blueprint that gives one model or the other. Uh, And over time, these have kind of come through different philosophies and so on. They've been developed, but we must evaluate economic models just like everything else in this world based on biblical principles. Does it line up with scripture? I'm going to say flat out, right off the bat, so there's no misunderstanding, I do not believe Marxism is a biblical model. And now I need to back that up and prove it. Well, first of all, first thing we're going to have to see is that Marxism assumes the world is uncreated and uncontrolled. It's uncreated and uncontrolled. That's an assumption that Marx had. He got it from Darwin and so on. And we've looked at this in weeks gone by, that the whole idea that society has evolved, that marriage is just a a social construct, that family is a social construct, and so on. All of these are, are just things that we've made to control people, to oppress people. That's why they're there. And especially the industrial capitalist who has all the money, he's just trying to oppress the weak and the poor and keep them loyal to their families and hinder their sex drives and so on just to keep them under his thumb, under his power and control. Marx wrote things like this. Man makes religion. Religion does not make man. I'm just going to highlight a few points of what he had to say. This is just in a few uh, paragraphs together. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature. Notice the oppression again. The heart of a heartless world and the soul of a soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. Famous line, right? Marx was the one who said that religion is the opium of the people. It just lulls them to sleep. And quite frankly, I have a hard time with that because if you know the true gospel, that says if you don't come to Christ and repent of your sin and take him as your savior, you face an eternity of judgment forever from a God who is righteously, righteously angry about sin, about your rebellion against him. That doesn't sound like opium to me. Doesn't sound like anything that's going to numb the mind or make people feel happy. The abolition of religion, said Marx, as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their real happiness. So if we could just abolish religion, we are actually just demanding for people's real happiness. Notice this. The criticism of religion disillusions man so that he will think, act, and fashion his reality like a man who has discarded his illusions. In other words, if we can get rid of religion, when we criticize religion, what it does is it it, it allows the person to discard his illusions and regain his senses. Notice this. So that he will move around himself as his own true son. So the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Mark's if I could sum up what he's saying is, in the beginning, man created religion. And that's where his model begins. And again, where does that lead? Well, it leads to the second point. Brokenness of the world is ignored. You might even say the brokenness of the world is distorted. Because Marx believed that the brokenness of the world had to do with the result of class struggle. And the solution then 
must solve the problem of inequality and erase the classes. If we could just get rid of classes, we will get rid of sin. We will get rid of violence. We will get rid of selfishness and so on. But the scripture says otherwise. The problem with the world is not a class problem. It's a sin problem. In Mark 7, Mark records Jesus' words uh, when he, he said to his disciples, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside can defile him, since it cannot defile him, pardon me, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and then it is expelled. That's a pretty picture, isn't it? And then he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Hmm. So Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who spent time in Russian, uh, Russian prison and knows what communism is all about, he said it this way. He said, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. But Marxism, the whole model of it is based on the problem is not sin or personal selfishness. It's class struggle. It's society itself. Here's the third one. Central planning does not work on a mass scale. Now, central planning is a, um, that is a, uh, shall we say, an economic term that I have to explain. Okay, so economists need to answer three questions. The first one is, what goods and services should be produced or consumed in a society? The second is, who produces what? And then the third question would be, who consumes what? So what goods and services do we need? And then who produces them? And who consumes them? There are two different systems in response to these. First of all, there's the decentralized system. It's market-based. It's based on the market. The market demands, supply and demand. And it's also, it assumes individual freedom for people to ask for what they need, ask for what they desire. And then how much is produced and consumed is all set by the price. If the price level is at a, at a, a certain point where only certain people can afford it, then we know how many of those we need to consume or, or produce. And as consumption goes up and up and up, the price comes down and so on. And and more and more can be produced based on technology and efficiency and so on. System number two, which is the Marxist idea, is a centralized system. And what that states is that a team of central planners needs to decide, generally a government. And socialism works this way. And of course, ultimately Marxism, where everyone just does whatever, there's no governments anymore, there's no private property, we all just share everything which is mind-bogglingly silly. I mean, to think about that, it, it doesn't work, even in my brain, let alone in real life. And that's been proven over and over again. But a team of central planners decide, individuals do what they're told, right? So the central planners say, we need this much of this good or this service, and you 
produce and you get to consume. Don't ask questions. We're the government. It also assumes that the economy is not always changing, but it's static. It stays the same all the time. There's never any changes. It's the difference between a static economy and a dynamic economy. Which one do you think we're in? <laughs> we're not in a static economy. Just look at what happened during COVID-19 and all the changes that happened. There's no bureaucratic uh, establishment in the world that could respond adequately to something like that. In fact, one great example of this kind of idea of centralized planning is just socialized health care. It's a mess. We have to face it. It's a mess. It's not there when you need it. And you look at the Affordable Care Act that came out in the U.S., what, 2000, what was it? I don't know. I'm going to say a name, a number, and then I'm going to be wrong. Somewhere around 2008, 2010, something like that, maybe a little bit later, but otherwise known as Obamacare in the U.S. And watch what happened on, uh, online with the website and so on, and people didn't have access to it. Now they're out of insurance and so on. It was just chaos everywhere. It's one of those uh, examples, again, that centralized planning doesn't work. It doesn't. Now, what I'm going to do right now is show you a little video that proves this. This was actually based off of an essay that Leonard Reed wrote uh, back in, I don't, I'm going to say the 50s or 60s, about the pencil, and it's called I Pencil. And it gives evidence to the complex stages of making something just as simple as a pencil, let alone something like this, as an iPhone or a laptop or an iPad or whatever. I mean, look around the room. Think of all the, the material in this room, the chairs that you're sitting on, the carpet on the floor, the walls, the steel, uh, the projectors. Look at it all and just, I want you to think, we don't often appreciate all the, the, the material, the goods and services that go into just making one tiny little object in this room. Such things as the signs that we don't even know are there, right? Or those lights that never come on unless the hydro goes out, right? We, we don't see them. We don't notice them. So watch this video. And I, I want you, there's one thing he says at the end about the invisible hand that I want you to think about um, as, as he says it, because it has something to do with the biblical side of this. But watch this. This is the world we live in. If we weren't surrounded by it every day, if we didn't take it for granted, we'd be dumbstruck by its very intricacy and brilliance. This is an ordinary, familiar wooden pencil. You might think a pencil is simple, Chances are you've been using one since before you could even read or write. But just because it's familiar doesn't mean it's simple. In fact, it's complicated, elaborate, beautiful, elegant. Its very existence is too improbable for any one person to truly comprehend. These are the basic materials that go into a pencil. Graphite, cedar, metal, and rubber. But if you had all the elements of a pencil 
right in front of you. Could you make a pencil? It's not as easy as you might think. In fact, no single person on the face of the earth could do it without the help of countless others. And this is the key to understanding the world. A pencil, just like you and me, is the end result of a vast and intricate family tree, a symphony of human activity that spans the globe. Through their work and knowledge, a vast number of people have had a hand in making this simple pencil. Unlike your family tree, this one begins with an actual tree. The most immediate ancestor of the pencil is a cedar tree in the Pacific Northwest. But the loggers who harvest the timber are also its ancestors. And these men don't work alone. They, in turn, are assisted by the people and industries that produce the saws, rope, and countless other tools that they use. These are also the ancestors of our pencil. As is the waitress at a nearby diner who sells the loggers lunch, to say nothing of the thousands of people involved in producing that simple midday meal. Across time and space, the web grows. Consider the roads, trucks, ships, communication systems, and the people who design, build, and maintain them. All of them are necessary to bring the lumber to the mills and the slat factories that process them. All of them are also the ancestors of the pencil. And even with the work of all these people, so far all we have is a stained wooden slat, a naked half of a wooden body of a pencil. But its family tree is larger and more extensive. The graphite is mined in China and Sri Lanka. At the pencil factory, it's mixed with clay and heat and other materials before it's extruded, dried, and baked in a kiln. People from different continents, different cultures, cooperate to bring these materials together with waxes and kilns and equipment from across the world. These too are the ancestors of the pencil. And the same is true of the eraser. With ingredients from around the world, it's the end result of a similarly complex and exotic branch of the family tree. As is the ferrule, the metal band made from material that is mined, refined, and shipped from all over the world. Each part of the pencil is the result of the collaboration and cooperation of millions of people. Together, they form a process that is constantly changing and adapting. A change in the availability or cost of material from one place might make another source more desirable, and the process changes and adapts fluidly. And there is a fact that's still more astounding. The absence of a mastermind, of anyone dictating these countless actions which bring a pencil into being. Each member of this family tree supplies only a small amount of the necessary know-how needed to make a pencil. They do so voluntarily, not because they necessarily want pencils or like pencils, but because by working to create them, they exchange their labor and skills for the wages that let them buy what they want and need. What you're seeing is the market at work. The spontaneous configuration of creative human energies, of millions of people with their various skills and talents, organizing voluntarily in response to human necessity and desire, as if led by an invisible hand to promote an end which was no part of the intention. Every second we are alive, we benefit from the products of voluntary, spontaneous cooperation. This is the modern world. It's miraculous 
It's intricate, and it gets better every day, so long as people are free to interact with each other. If we can leave the creative energies of humankind uninhibited, there's no limit to what we can accomplish. Okay, there was a mention of uh, the invisible hand, which is actually interesting. It, it, obviously, I don't believe that's a Christian video, but um, it's a hint at something. That the very idea of central planning is the idea that, again, that, that is based on the assumption that the world is uncontrolled and uncreated. So guess what? We have to control it. It's up to us to control it. Whereas Adam Smith, who was one of the, he's known as the father of capitalism. Uh, he was a, uh, an economist back in the 1700s in Scotland who had a Puritan upbringing, Puritan background, and so on. He believed that the inv invisible hand of God, the invisible hand of providence is what was to move the world, move the markets, and so on. Providence itself, God's, control God's sovereignty over it all rather than man trying to control it for themselves. Again, Marxism is really a form of rebellion against God. So the next one is a hot topic. Here it is. Income equality is not a form of biblical justice. Just like other forms of equality, God didn't make us equal. He, didn't, he made us equal in status, but he doesn't make us equal in personality. He doesn't make us the same. We're not clones of each other. We're all very unique. We have different abilities. We have different talents. We have different interests and so on. And yes, we have different bank accounts. And that's not a bad thing, but uh, it's often portrayed that way. Jay Richards, another economist, contemplates why people are drawn to Che Guevara, uh, the Argentinian uh, communist revolutionary who trained Fidel Castro, led execution squads, and created labor camps in communist China, Cuba, and was eventually killed for an uprising. I forget what country it was in, but uh, why do people wear his picture on their shirt? It's very interesting that, that when... Uh, left-leaning people wear his picture on their shirt, they don't realize that he was often executing homosexuals just because they were homosexual. Um, he, he was a pretty mean dude. But why, did, why do they wear his picture on their shirts? Why do they do it? Because Richard says communists like Che Guevara had their rhetoric right. They knew the value of good PR. They talked a good talk, denouncing inequality and defending the poor. But there's a reality check here. Yes, compassion for the poor is a priority for God. It's over and over again, Deuteronomy 15. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against him, against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. And politicians, again, I question the motives. They make wonderful statements about caring for the poor, but continue to pad their own pockets in the meantime, in the process. God calls for true compassion from true motives that are affected by the gospel. Also, one other thing to note, God also has a priority on just measurements of money. Um, so you shall do no wrong in judgment, God says in Leviticus 19, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah and a just hin, and so on. 
In Proverbs 11, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. You want to talk about income uh, justice. Uh, here is one, because the modern day application of this, where do we see balances being misplaced, or let's say the devaluing of money happening today? Well, it's in that little reality called inflation, which back in October of 2020, Canada's inflation rate was at 0.7%. As of September of this year, just a couple months ago, inflation rate has reached 4.4% and is still climbing. Which means that if you lent money 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it's worth a fraction of what it was then. That's an unjust balance or weight. It's an abomination, Proverbs says, to the Lord. You can understand what God thinks of the idea of inflation. God also never promised poverty would be, that it would be eradicated from the earth. In fact, Deuteronomy 15, he said, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. In John 12, when Mary took that very expensive box of ointment and she anointed the feet of Jesus and Judas Iscariot uh, acted very political, <laughs> shall we say, when uh, he acted indignant, how dare, how dare this be done? This could have been given to the poor. He didn't care for the poor either, but Jesus' response is very interesting. He said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor, notice this, you have always with you. You're always going to have them, but you do not have me always with you. It's interesting. I think there are reasons for that. I think it's one way that God tests our hearts. God reveals who we are as uh, Christians, as believers, what our hearts are like as far as generosity and compassion and so on. But there are blessings in poverty as well that it seems that these justice warriors miss. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yes, while he might have been speaking about spiritual poverty, it is the same attitude that comes when we realize I don't have what it takes on my own. I need someone to come in and help me. There are blessings in that. They drive us to Christ. They drive us to the Lord. Especially as Christians, but even as non-Christians who wake up to their senses spiritually through poverty, it can be a very good thing. While uh, every person, here's another reason, every, while every person is equal in value, we said this already, we're not equal in ability, health, wealth, circumstances, etc. The diversity was a real thing within the church. Uh, but the rich were not to be held in high esteem due to their wealth and status. So you see the, the early church navigating this as well. James actually talked about this in James 2 when he talked about uh, how to treat the poor and the rich. We should not treat the rich better than the poor. Uh, we shouldn't be making distinctions between them, which again uh, hints at the fact that they were present both in that society at that time. And the church had to learn how to navigate with both together in one family, in one church family. Um, I was going to read part of the text, but I think we'll just keep moving on. Um, incentive to create. 
is non-existent. Here we go. Here's the next one. The incentive to create is non-existent. Again, if you assume there's no creator and there's no design and there's no organization, then what comes out of that is going to lead to the very same thing. So Marxism is a reward-less system. You don't get rewards for anything. There's no such thing as profit. Whatever it costs you to make a good, that's what you sell it for. You don't make a profit off of it at all. There's no reward. History has proven the only motivation then is fear. It's the only way you can get anyone to do anything. But scripture is full of incentives, and we'll get into those a little bit later. But Paul was especially clear over and over again of the incentives of why he did what he did, and he took the beatings that he took and, and uh, suffered the way he suffered. It wasn't just because he had a death wish or because he was just super humble. He did it because he had incentive. God had incentivized him, given him a reward down the road, a future reward to look toward that caused him to give up this life for that one. Just like Jesus said when he said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world temporarily and lose his soul forever? And uh, the last point, I think, no, there's one more after this, but historical attempts have always failed. If I can just... uh, point out a couple of them. I found it, this one I found a little bit humorous, but again, high school English class, uh, the teacher, the Marxist teacher just a few weeks ago, who I keep giving weekly updates on, wanted to demonstrate for the class the beauties of socialism and the redistribution of wealth and decided unexpectedly to give bonus marks for a test based on grade level. So if a kid did poorly on the test, she gave extra marks to bring it way up. And if a kid did well on the test, she gave little, if any, bonus marks to keep their mark down. And it was an attempt to create equality. After all, that's what justice is, isn't it? The problem is equality of reward does not reflect equality of effort. That's a big deal. The kids who did better on the test did so because they worked harder in studying. And the kids who did worse on the test were rewarded for their laziness. The result, the kids who worked harder to prepare for the test were not very happy with the outcome. Therefore, they are not big fans of socialism. And I say, great, do it again. Keep it up, because you are proving exactly what it is. Well, here's a few stories for you. One is William Bradford um, and the early settlers. American Thanksgiving's coming. It's right at the end of this month. I'm looking forward to it, by the way. I get two turkeys every year. It's great. Uh, But again, it's a story of triumph over hunger and poverty at Plymouth. And some people think it's a story of, uh, you know, how the the Indians saved the white people and so on, and or uh, whatever the narrative might be. But that's not the story. Here's the true story. There was a great famine in 1623 that nearly wiped out all of the pilgrims. And uh, the settlers were selling their clothes, they were selling their bed coverings for food, while others starved. And the governor of the pilgrims that had settled, uh, William Bradford, identified the source of the problem as, well, a communist model that they were living under. Uh, And it had to do with the fact that they had investors that had given them money and had funded the whole trip to come to America, to this land, And so basically they set it up so that the Plymouth Colony was a community that was owned by the community. 
pilgrims held land in common because they made a deal with these investors. And the system, all it did was create confusion and anger. And the share of the labor was not equal. So those doing everything felt like slaves. And those who were lazy and unmotivated, they took advantage of the hardworking. And before long, people are just not motivated to work anymore. And of course, there was a famine and it almost wiped them out until Bradford and the other leaders decided to grant every one a parcel of land to call their own. It's called private property. It's a wonderful concept. And they could produce whatever they wanted off the land. And whatever they produced off the land was theirs to do what they wanted with it. They could sell it. They could keep it. They could do whatever with it. They could make whatever crop they wanted from it. They could buy cattle or whatever. And guess what happened? Everyone who got a parcel of land and property to call their own wanted to improve its value. And competition started to happen, which is a very healthy thing. Pro 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 productivity, pardon me, increased, and soon there was an abundance of food and resources, and that is the story of the American Thanksgiving. It was the story of communism turning to the free market. Russia is a great tragedy of a story when Lenin's Bolshevik party took control in 1917 and soon controlled every aspect of Russian society, industry, trade, education, transportation. This, of course, required secret police and massive bureaucracy for that central planning, the use of terror, because, of course, communism is such a great idea, you have to force it on people. You certainly can't sell it. Attempts to centralize control of the economy just led to disaster. They couldn't manage the factories and the farms from a distance. So you have people in wherever, in Moscow or wherever they were, trying to control things that were going on, on the other side of Russia. And Russia's a pretty big country, last I checked. It didn't work. Restrictions on trade created a black market that was actually larger than the official economy. 1923... Prices were, listen to this, one million times higher than prices before the revolution. Productivity tanked. Lenin forced the peasants to sell grain below market price. Talk about not getting a profit. After all, we want to be just. Profit is evil. Below market price while ordering wide-scale massacre of wealthier peasants. It led to food shortages Famine killed 5.2 million people as a result of that. 1924, Joseph Stalin takes over. He absorbs border countries and calls it the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR. Stalin implemented a series of five-year plans to control large sectors of the economy, destroying livelihoods of industrial workers. He forced a famine in, between 1932 and 1933 that killed millions of peasants. At the height of Stalin's rampage, 1937 and 1938, he averaged about 1,000 political executions per day and millions being sent to labor camps. Because that's what you do in central planning. You don't allow people to work based on their own interests and their own skill set. You send them to camps and you get them to dig meaningless holes. China was no different Although it might have been in different circumstances, Mao Zedong in 1949 set in motion the great leap forward. These guys were PR professionals. The great leap forward. He said such things as in their literature, we shall teach the sun and moon to change places. 
That's pretty impressive. We shall create, listen to these words, we shall create a new heaven and earth for man. Do you notice all the biblical implications of that statement? We shall create a new heaven and a new earth for man. What was the result of his creation of a new heaven and a new earth? Well, 20 million plus people died in famine caused by the centrally planned heaven on earth project. Another 20 million plus died in Chinese labor camps. So I think it's clear by now the early church is no model of Marxism. In fact, it was a very temporary situation in Acts 4. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. You say, it sounds so nice. Sounds so much like a communist society. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of the land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds uh, of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now again, remember, Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. Unless there's a thus says the Lord or the apostle said, we're doing it this way, telling the narrative of Acts, you can see right from the beginning of Acts to the end of Acts, it's a very progressive book. So it's very hard to proof text things just out of the book of Acts because it's a story and it needs to stay a story. Not decide, well, just because they did it that way at the beginning of Acts or in the middle of Acts or at the end of Acts, that's the way we should do it forever. But notice a few things about this account that are very different from what Marx or any of the socialists and uh, new Marxists today, cultural Marxists today are trying to push. First of all, it was temporary to meet a specific need at a specific time. This was not the norm. These were people who were being put out of their houses. They had repented and turned to Jesus as followers of Christ. They're in Jerusalem. They're being persecuted and so on. They're being threatened. And this is the way they're responding, which is very similar to the needs that are being presented today with people losing their jobs for mandates. It's a temporary need, but it's specific. It was voluntary rather than mandatory. Again, it's not under threat of execution or labor camps. These people were doing this voluntarily out of the goodness of their heart or out of their hearts being changed by the gospel, not merely the goodness of their heart, a converted heart. There is no state or government involved here. Also, it's a small scale, not a large scale. You can centrally plan a church maybe, but you can't centrally plan a nation or a world. <laughs> and if you think a country has tried this over and over again, or even countries have tried just to, to centrally plan their healthcare and they failed, what's going to happen when they try to do this on a global scale? What a miserable mess. The people involved own property and investments. Well, that's interesting. They wouldn't have been able to do what they were doing without private property, without investors that had things to sell, things of value. So it's all based on the idea of people owning things privately. There's not a hint that owning property is immoral in this text. There's no reference to class warfare at all. 
And if we kept reading into Acts 5, we would read about Ananias and Sapphira who held back part of the proceeds. They were not condemned for holding back part of the proceeds. They were condemned for lying about it. If they'd only told the truth, but they lied to the Holy Spirit. Marxism is not a biblical model. I hope that's clear. 